0: The Personal legend Paul Merson, John O'Shea and Wes Brown are coming to Dublin It's an exclusive off-air event So if you want to be there, get on to offtheball.com forward slash events Just Eat, the official food delivery partner of the UEFA Champions League
1: The Sunday Papers
0: on Off The Ball
1: You're welcome along, paper review coming at you before anyone on YouTube says it, we know we're all wearing the same colour shirts. <laughs> we spotted it too, almost straight away. We tried to make Fionn take off his shirt and just go with grey t-shirt, but he thought it looked better this way. <laughs> uh, Fionn Davenport, travel journalist, a hard shoulder uh, weekly guest and of course a Golf Weekly core member. Hello, you're very welcome. Hey Joe. And Keane Tracy of the Irish Independent, you're very welcome. Thank you Joe. Do you all
0: routinely wear green? Well it's my first time meeting Fionn so I thought you know I better dress up for the occasion <laughs> so we thought what better way than to wear matching shirts
2: I I, I got the text from
1: you yes it says we're all wearing khaki green so yes let's kick off May in style I yeah. said <laughs> so the uh, back pages sun sport they capture uh, the two big stories yesterday really so it's uh, Born to Run and Born to Stun. Born to Run is a picture of Jack Conan yesterday, Leinster, through to yet another European Cup final, uh, victorious at the Stadium against Toulouse, 41 points to 22. And the Born to Stun, most people thought Clare were going to the Gaelic Rounds to take a hiding, really, but they surprised everyone. Great picture of Brian Lowen, who's just got that wonderful excitement only a shock can bring Clare 124 Limerick 220 Brian Lowen hailed uh, relentless was his word uh, Claire as they stunned Limerick mm. at the Gaelic Grounds the first defeat in Munster for Limerick since 2019 uh, Is there the possibility if you were to adopt the role
2: of the soothsayer that at some point in midsummer um, the Somebody either captain, senior members of the team or the manager will go, yeah, it was the defeat to Claire. That's the one that really kind of reminded us, you know, that four in a row, that's the ambition and that's the way we had to go.
1: Yes. Never again, they said. Yeah. (laughs) I suspect that will be the case. Sunday Mirror have a picture of uh, smiling Jim Ratcliffe. So, uh, oh, man, Ratcliffe's new £5 billion plus offer outbids shake. Uh, But two of the Glazers would stay on the board. So Simon Mullock here, Manchester United fans facing the nightmare scenario of at least two of the Glazers family continuing to take money from the club. Uh, But it seems Sir Jim Ratcliffe is ahead in the bidding in that he has tabled offers that value the club in excess of £5 whereas the uh, Sheikh Shassim bid doesn't quite do that. So it seems uh, Ratcliffe is going to... Uh, be successful that's the final round of uh, bids Um, there's further pieces on that across the pages we have the Sunday World then cream of the cop it's a picture of Declan Rice this is John Aldridge who is a columnist in the Sunday World saying uh, Declan Rice is who Liverpool should sign ASAP this summer we have the Sunday Times they go with the picture of Jimmy O'Brien going over for Leinster at the Aviva no place like home dominant Leinster beat Toulouse to reach Champions Cup final at the Aviva And beneath that same story, Ineos leads Qatari rivals in the race to buy Manchester United. Uh, So uh, billionaire Jim Ratcliffe, who's almost talked about as the plucky underdog here. (laughs) But it seems as if because he has valued the club at over £5 which is closer to the £6 valuation of the Glazers, that he is very much the front-runner now. So uh, that's the latest development on Manchester United. Back page of the mail. Again, it's a picture from the Aviva yesterday. Dublin delight as Leinster stay on course for fifth uh, title with stunning win over Toulouse, 41 points to 22. Rory Keane reporting there. And uh, again, similar picture on the back page of the Sunday Independent Touch of Class. Leinster dismantle French Giants in thrilling display. Keane, you were there. Leinster scored four of their five tries against 14 men. Those two 10 minutes in-bin periods completely devastating for Toulouse. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um probably just showed I suppose Le- Leinster's ruthless killer instinct. Um yeah, the yellow cards were had a massive bearing on the game. I think. Well, I know because I've seen it on certainly on my social media. Lots of angry Toulouse fans that Andrew Porter didn't at least follow the two Toulouse lads to the sin bin for a tackle off the ball, which you know would have come at a crucial stage of the game. Toulouse scored a try just after that. I don't know how it was missed. They're not honest. wrong.
1: No, they're not wrong. Absolutely. We they're love Andrew wrong. Porter, but I mean that was just a slam dunk. He has a he
0: has a streak in him. Um, a real aggressive streak that he does tend to give away a lot of penalties. Wasn't it in the Wales game earlier on in the Six Nations? He gave away a lot of penalties, um, but it's one of those things where if you take that out of his game, is he the same player? Of course, he's not. But like at some stage, you're kind of going to be fearful that that might end up costing Leinster or Ireland, you know, a big game. It could be a World Cup quarter final. It could be a pool game to World Cup. So I just don't know how Wayne Barnes missed it. Look, I, I don't think it would have made a difference to the end result. Uh, Leinster were where a, a thrilling display I think is what you described it, Jarrah's Jo or someone in the papers did but it wasn't really a thrilling game I have to say I thought Toulouse were really disappointing um, I mean this was being billed as well it was the, the competition's two most successful teams nine titles between them and Toulouse were just totally totally outpowered so um Plenty of coverage in the papers about it. Like Neil Francis is kind of interesting taking the line of, you know, what kind of ramifications will this have for France at the World Cup, which is interesting because they obviously had a bit of a mix six nations, but the performance at Twickenham, you'd have to say kind of at the end, left you kind of going, OK, you know, they're still going to be unbelievable. So um, it was more evidence, I think, to suggest that Leinster and Irish teams have figured out how to play against the power teams. Um, we were kind of discussing it off air, the just the sheer size of the the Toulouse second row's Manny Miafu is 140kg and Richie Arnold is 120kg. Um, these are the kind of profiles that you know Irish teams have struggled against in the past. And obviously Leinster are going to play the winners of La Rochelle and Exeter today. Um, and I suppose no one kind of sums up that kind of size than Will Skelton. And he's been kind of Leinster's kryptonite over the last few years. But I think the way they handled Toulouse was really, really encouraging. Not sure... How good of preparation it is for you know if we assume it's going to be La Rochelle, not to be disrespectful to Exer, but I would fully expect La Rochelle to win. Um, so for Leinster, it's all about managing the next few weeks. It just it's just a crazy schedule when you actually put it down in black and white. So next weekend they're going to play the Sharks in the URC quarter final. If they win that, they've got a semi final, then a Champions Cup final, and then potentially a URC final. So uh, we speak so often about Leinster's strength and depth, and we're going to see that tested to the absolute core I think over the next few weeks
1: we sure are Stuart Barnes on uh, page 3 of the Sunday Times he just notes that we saw a really open attacking semi-final 5 tries to 2 and he says there's never been a European Champions Cup semi-final with more first half points 3 tries for Leinster 2 for Toulouse there are plenty of fans who don't like this sort of stuff basketball rugby was the denigrating term applied to super rugby in its heyday But he says, here we have two teams tearing each other to pieces until the rain came. The first half looked alarmingly for some, just like Super Rugby. And I thought that was an interesting point. The evolution of the game continues. And he talked about various things as well, some of the points you've touched on, Keen. He mentioned discipline. Toulouse conceded 28 points in the 20 minutes that they were a man down. Uh, Leinster played for the corners. They base their supremacy on line-out dominance. Nobody was more influential than Dan Sheehan. He also notes Jameson Gibson Park razor sharp mood. He kicked brilliantly as well in the absence of James Lowe. He took control of the kicking in the uh, on the right hand side of the 22, where Lowe's left boot usually worked so well. So we saw plenty of box kicks, and they were always uh, 50-50 for the uh, chasers, and it gave them territory and possession. And he does note because if you didn't see the game, this is significant to lose at a 6-2 split in the bench and. At uh, 13 minutes in, their centre goes down injured. So Intimac goes to centre and DuPont, uh, the genius that he is, that uh, goes to out half, which he did do a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. for to lose. But the point is made across the board in Neil Francis's piece, in Stuart Barnes's piece, that Paul Grau, uh, the replacement at nine, uh, lacked control. The pass, writes Stuart Barnes, hurled at Willis, emphasised the glaring gap in the very heart of their decision making. So between. Uh, the yellow cards, which very much are, are self-inflicted and the loss of DuPont at nine, we didn't quite get the Toulouse are much better the, this year than last year, which we were sold pre-game because their opening try, I thought, my God, they mm-hmm. just cut through Leinster. Leinster are, are in big trouble here.
0: It was very similar to last season's game, even in terms of the, the scoreline at the end. And I remember after that game, Ugo Mola, the Toulouse head coach, was talking about you know how they weren't used to playing teams at this pace. So they've had twelve months to prepare for the challenge that awaited, and they just didn't look any better prepared than they were this time last year. Um, we did have a translator in the presser after the match yesterday, but even my pigeon leaving Sir French was enough to get me to understand that the the French journalists were absolutely bemused by the this substitution that Hugo Mola made because they had Retier on the bench as well and he could have come on rather than moving Dupont so he came off the bench like you said Joe 2 weeks ago against Lyon, which was a massive game for for Toulouse but he came off the bench and pretty much changed the game and ended up winning it so Hugo Mola can point at that that it has worked in the in the recent past but the idea of moving like one of the best players ever. Obviously, it's it's fair to say nearly at this age. Like I was thinking about it. It's it's the equivalent of moving Messi in his prime back into like um into midfield. You know, he does it now, kind of at ease. But like to to move your best player, the, the Danton Dupont is so good at what he does because he gets more touches of the ball than anyone else. And obviously, if you're to move him out one position, that's not going to happen. So when you're bringing on a guy who he just what like it's very tough to replace Anton Dupont anyway but this guy Neil Francis kind of goes hard and it like just didn't look up to that kind of yeah. standard at all so that was a massive flaw you'd have to say so the French journalists were amused, I'd imagine the Toulouse fans were as well um, but it was interesting Leo Cullen spoke about it afterwards that you know I'd say a lot of people who were watching that were going casual viewers maybe geez like Dupont moving to 10 but he has done it before Lencer had prepared for it so it just shows you the level of detail that, that they go into so um, yeah Leinster fully deserving of their of their win Joe you picked out a couple of players um Bernard Jackman touches on in the Sunday independent and other couple of them as well um and in particular Jason Jenkins and Charlie Natoy so the like Leinster obviously you know they're two or there three um foreign players And Burn Jack makes a really good point that they both only have one cap each. So they're not like guys who were kind of tearing it up for international rugby. And he makes a really interesting comparison just in in the last um, paragraph. Um, He says, by the way, the last the last internet, international Leinster signed who only had one cap was the legend Issa Nasewa who won one cap off the bench for Fiji and he makes the point that if Jenkins or Natai can have anything like the impact that Issa Nasewa can have they won't be doing too badly but it just shows you like the depth and like someone like Charlie Natai uh, won the Challenge Cup with Leon last season he's been on Leinster's radar for a while to lose a player of Robbie Henshaw's calibre the week of the game you know, was a massive blow but he slots in absolutely seamlessly and the machine keeps ticking along Jason Jenkins was signed from Munster uh, last summer for exactly these type of games yet Leinster backed their own and Ross Maloney who's had an outstanding season continues to be one of the most heral- unheralded players in Irish rugby you'd have to say um, so you're keeping a guy like that off the bench who was signed to go up against the, the big locks um, the, the guys who I mentioned earlier Miafu and, and Arnold but yes um, he fully justified his starting place Ross Maloney didn't yeah. and so did someone like Jack Conan in the back row so what are the great Arts of Leo Cullen's job that I don't think gets um, enough credit is how he manages to to keep all of these guys happy because whatever about young kind of guys coming through the system, these guys are internationals, you know, and he still manages to, to keep them all happy and the machine keeps chugging along. So I touched on the depth um, the depth that they have. He Leo Cullen made the point afterwards that they are going to make changes for the Sharks game this weekend because, you know, you, you just can't play every weekend now, you know, f- you and myself were chatting about the the sort of physicality of rugby nowadays. So backing her up, I, even though they won handily enough yesterday, I'd imagine there was uh, plenty of sore bodies. So um,
1: got the job done, but a very different task. Yeah. I'd imagine the in the final. if you keep an eye on the rugby. I would say in some respects you enjoy uh, rugby punditry more than actually watching the games. Uh, yeah. Anything from yesterday jump out at you or happy to move on? Was it, uh, yeah, well,
2: Peter O'Reilly points to it is is the kind of the the, the talk about how the Aviva? What you had is the short of the final, the premier game of 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 the championship, and there's five thousand empty seats. Mm. And uh, Leo Cullen beforehand, who, as Peter Riley says, was un- was uncharacteristically punchy about the EPCR. Um, management of ticketing and like and and someone as someone who doesn't really keep abreast of how these tickets are, but like that EPCR took control of the ticketing, that Leinster weren't happy with the pricing structure that EPCR put in place and with tickets at seventy
1: five euro. Yeah, there was a bit of confusion in that it was initially reported that the starting prices were seventy five, but there was a glut of tickets cheaper than seventy five, but mm. very, very quickly the only remaining tickets were seventy five euro.
2: And to which and it's easy to kind of say you know one then leads to the other is is that like so there were 5000 empty seats because the typical leinster fan went, "Nah, that's too much for me." Is that actually is that something that that kind of stands up to scrutiny or are, are they saying all oh, leinster fans are rich? I'm saying is is that like 75 quid might be a lot but it's not it's not 160 quid to go see Bruce Springsteen.
1: No, I guess there were no concessions for children amongst those seventy five. And that's yeah, and that's it that's a significant issue for And sure. there's also a touch potentially of Aviva fatigue in that they're at the Aviva next week for their U or C quarterfinal and then the semifinals at the Aviva and then the Champions Cup finals at the Aviva. Yeah. And so there's, there's maybe a-, a bit of picking and choosing. Although this as you say, if you know, like this is the marquee game to <laughs> lose. Market. It Leinster. seems
2: shocking to it, me. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was like, look, the, it, the atmosphere actually was quite good. I have to yeah.
2: say
0: yesterday, but for such a big game, like you're so right, it doesn't get much bigger in Club Rugby. Like I said, nine titles between them, and it was a shame. Like I mean, I could only see obviously one side of the stadium because I was in the press box, but I could see in the upper tier big swathes of, of empty seats, and that's not right. I mean, the semi final today is sold out in Bordeaux, and like are they th- similar prices? Do you know? I'm not sure actually offhand. Um, so I thought
1: it was. It didn't reflect well on the competition particularly whenever there was a conversion kick or a penalty kick they would go for the low down angle behind the kicker to show the angle and you would see the swathes of empty empty seats thousands of empty seats at this marquee game maybe when they're pricing these matches they do need to think about the importance of of, um, you know this event as a marketing tool this competition is in decline in the eyes of many people and here's your semi-final marquee game and you've got thousands of empty seats I think within the PC or they have to sit down and say, well, actually, are we over milking fans? And secondly, even if we think we're not, we need to make sure this is a sellout just for marketing purposes.
0: My understanding is that for last year's semi-final, like EPCR would generally take control of the semifinals. My understanding is that Leinster had control of last year because it was only a seven day turnaround. So if you remember back to Leinster beat um, Leicester and Welford Road and you had Munster and Toulouse that day, or the, the Saturday that went to extra time. So it was only seven days. The season is structured differently this year with the World Cup and that. So, um, And it's also worth mentioning as well that like, I know the vast majority of Leinster supporters do come from Dublin but there's plenty of them who come from the country as well and it's not cheap to to come up to Dublin for a day if you wanted to bring kids like you said Joe if you want to get trains and that like God forbid if you wanted to have an overnight in Dublin we're seeing this in the Six Nations as well in terms of the ticket prices for, for that game and look the, the Six Nations game sold out it's supply and demand where the team is going well but like I personally know lots of people from down home in Limerick who just can't afford to come up to an international game in Dublin if they wanted to spend you the night You know a Leinster
2: fans in Limerick do you? <laughs> no I know for a lot of
0: Irish fans in Limerick yeah so it's not cheap, you know, and like that is absolutely we're, true. And I, I'm conscious of that as well because, like, when you're kind of giving out about you know it, things not being a sellout, it's easy for someone like me to say because I'm very lucky that I get a free ticket to go into the, the press box, you know. So it's a it's a tricky one, but it's just it's not right that a game like that wasn't like it should have been the hottest ticket in town. Like a few years ago, you would have been scraping around trying to find tickets for these games. So
2: I, I was yeah. surprised that you, I was surprised for precisely that reason. I, I would have thought, even as a as a as a rugby neophyte, I would. Would have thought that it would be the hottest ticket in town mm. that you'd be, there'd be touts outside selling them for triple face value just to get people in the doors. Um, I mean, to the broader point, I mean, Dublin's an expensive city, and that's you know that's just true.
1: Well, uh, look, sometimes I mean, uh, you have to reach a uh, price point which is too steep for people before. Realise. Yeah, 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 for sure.
0: And there wasn't a huge amount of Toulouse fans worth mentioning as well because the French for the Six Nations game travelled yeah. in huge numbers and created yeah, yeah. an unbelievable atmosphere. So I would imagine a lot of Toulouse fans looked at it as well and for the same reason said we just can't afford that.
1: Lots in the papers. So we'll get to uh, Man City, are they too good to be loved? There is uh, Brexit being very good for Irish footballers. There's Paul Kimmage on doping and horse racing. There's an interview with Eddie Pepperell in the golf. There's a fascinating interview with uh, John Coughlin, athletics coach. Uh, for instance, on the GA front, um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> the old gang playing some of the biggest hits. So Joe Brawley with a strong attack on the RT panel and Pat Spillane not impressed with the quality of football in the Sunday world. For instance, Spillane says, apologies for not going into depth on all the games last weekend. There aren't enough pages. There were a lot of games, to be fair. But he says, the first halves of the two highest profile football matches down Donegal Galway were scum and reinforced my views on Gaelic football. They were cagey, sleep-inducing boar fests. I nearly fell off my chair when the BBC's Thomas Newblock declared at halftime in Uri that they had just witnessed a wonderful half of football. Uh, he does go on to uh, praise Galway, though, thinks they're in good shape, much better than uh, last year. Uh, as for Joe brolly uh, the passion is gone and we're left with a Sunday shame. So it uh, does not pull any punches, uh, no passion, no sense of the great traditions of our games, no sense of glory, no feel for the bigger picture, no anger, no entertainment, false discussions that bear no resemblance to the reality of how we discuss football. It's a sham. Laughter is forced and cued by unfunny remarks. The puns, the pundits, he says later on, answer safely, uh, resorting to the well-known book "Nutshells for G A. Pundry." Punditry. It's all very weird, and unnatural. Uh, he bemoans Lee Keegan for apologising on Twitter for giving Man of the Match the wrong player. He um, initially had given it to Kieran Murta of Roscommon, but then he later on tweeted that Damien Comer should have been given the award, and he explained how he had to give the a man of the match uh, midway through the fourth quarter and then it was after that the Comer came to the fore and so he apologised. He says, this naturally prompted me to worry about Keegan's mental health. First publicly apologising for his man of the match selection, worse licking up to the Galway folk by saying you have a serious team. To be honest, I nearly vomited and he also said, apart from this, the embarrassment caused to Kieran Murta, who must feel like a right... Uh, DIC, with that award sitting on his mantelpiece. He says it's a perfect snapshot of the falseness and eagerness to please slash play safe that has infected the Ortiz studio where everyone's looking over their shoulder. By the time I was sacked, a lot had changed. There was no loyalty, no sense of integrity, no camaraderie. Colm O'Rourke, Pat's bland soldiered on for a while, but I think they hated it as, they were, as it was clear they were no longer wanted. Too opinionated, too passionate, too prone to saying things they actually meant. As we watched the fun Distraction of talking about football being turned into a soulless chore, the glamorous brunette, I think that's his partner, said they should bring uh, Pat back, um, is what she said when they were watching. The place is like a morgue without him. And he finishes off by saying, what's happening now in the uh, public broadcaster's studio is a dystopia, a dull travesty. If you took Wee Marty out of it, it would evolve the atmosphere of the moon. It has become a national embarrassment. If Lee wants to apologise to anyone, he should apologise To the nation (laughs) I'd like to hear that apology and that's wow that's a mass killing yeah everyone
2: got some there yeah Um, it's a bit you know the way two things can be true but not connected to one another so is the Sunday game and punditry in general kind of slightly tamer these days than it used to be. That's probably true. As 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 some of the more fiery pundits have departed the scene, uh, Joe Brawley is obviously one of them, um, and that's unquestionably true. There's this kind of more measured tone taken, and uh, and but then, it, <laughs> so there's a certain sense you're like going, yeah, Joe, that's 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 fair cop, or that's not untrue. And then, but then I'm wondering. It's like asking Richard Keys, Richard, I need you to write a piece on how you think the Sky Sports pundits are doing, mm. you know. And, and the problem with that is, is that with all respect, it's like your views are jaundiced and, and you're jaundiced by personal experience. And, and what comes across here is, is that Joe as always, has always had strident opinions and isn't going to temper them for any man or woman. But at the same time, there, there's a hint here is that, like, you're still smarting over being let go by RT. And I I don't know that if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't also be smarting by it. Um, I think some of the ad hominem stuff is a bit in poor taste. I just think. And also, there's always, the, there's a there's a literary device that, that people can use. It's like, a friend of mine texted me. is like, or, okay. I, I'm not saying they didn't, but it's just like, so what? You know, I have lots of friends who text me and I... Don't necessarily give particular credence to what they're saying. Is is that like I, I? And it's funny because hyperbole can be quite funny. But like you know, as Eamon Fitzmars was droning on, a friend of mine texted, "F me, Broly. I wouldn't be surprised if Fitzmars started into a decade of the Rosary. And I'm like, okay, it's kind of mean and funny, but like, what's the point? And, and, and there's a part of it I, I don't know. I, I again, I guess I just feel is is that like yes, certain things are true. There's, a, there's a, a It seems like a conscious decision was made to to kind of turn down the heat. Um, does it make the Sunday game better? Does it make, does it make the the say, the soccer analysis better? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I don't know that something like this really just kind of is anything other than Joe Brawley kind of you know just turning over old enmities and
1: and just keeping them aflame? The Sky Sports Studio is almost the outlier these days, that Mm. trend you talk about in Punditry, which I'm part of, by the way, there is absolutely uh, no doubt that the Virgin Media panel, uh, which I think does a lot of great stuff, is a very different atmosphere to Hook and McGurk and Pope. Sensibilities have changed. I I wonder, I think the interesting question is amongst the audience, certainly in in the in the hierarchies of various organisations, uh, sensibilities have changed, I suspect. But do the audience still really want vicious... Vicious is maybe a harsh way of putting it, but those those strident views, which were very much in vogue 15, 20 years ago, do they, Do you suspect everyone sitting at home is like, God, it has got very boring? Or uh, A lot of uh, people are. Yeah. Uh, but do you think then if we brought it back suddenly and we saw Dunphy saying, Glenn Whelan, what's he got? Ferrari, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do you think people would say, actually, hang on, I don't feel good about that anymore?
2: I would wager a guess here. And and to use the example of the Sky Sports Studio, is, is that all those names you mentioned, your Dumfies, your George Hooks, etc., who were the strident pundits who were unafraid, they said, as as Brawley goes, it's like, say what they actually think. Yeah. Um, it, there is, though, a subtle but all-important difference between them and the Sky Sports Studio, even the the kind of the Gary Nevilles and the Jamie Carragers and the Roy Keynes, is is that whereas you could not. Tr- a trust is the wrong word, but you can't say, like George Hook or Dumphy or whoever, they would have a go at a player if they felt that they were deserving of a go, but they'd also have a go at the association if they felt that the association was deserving of a go. They had that fearlessness. They didn't owe anything to to any organisation other than just the viewers. It's funny, as a quick
1: interjection there, the RT panel were fearless on many fronts. I don't think they can say we did a great job when it comes to the FAI. Well, they had a go. No. You don't think so? I don't think they ever said questions need to be asked about the way John Delaney's running that association. Well, questions I mean, need the, to be asked. The, not the, once.
2: There's issues. It's not even so much issues around potential libel. I mean, it's just that they the the, the Sky Sports Studio are very good at creating the fight that the pundits or that the the... the, 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 the the viewers love, whilst being incredibly careful never to criticise the Premier League,
1: ever. Ultimately, these are cheerleaders for the Premier League. I disagree with that, you know. Do you? Yeah. I do feel Neville, a couple of years ago, was saying Premier League standards really dipped. He was very down on the Premier League a couple of years ago, whereas in the last couple of years, he has said, it's back now. It's really good again. I feel that a bad game says it's a bad game. I think you're being a touch harsh on him. I think, Gary Neville, for instance, there are lots of issues... Um, there are
2: lots of issues obviously that are hot topics for the Premier League at the moment, not least is the ongoing yeah. takeover of Man United, but also the Saudis taking over Newcastle and what seems like ancient history now, but uh, Abu Dhabi taking over Manchester City. I think Gary Neville has been politically guarded in addressing those full on. I don't believe uh, that he has done so. He's perfectly within his... He's entitled not to if, if, you know, I'm not suggesting. But at the same time, I just think that he is very selective. He's very selective in a clever way about the topics that he's going to get exercised about. Like, for example, have either of you ever seen Gary Neville get as exercised by anything as he did about
1: the uh, European Super League proposal? No, it's true. And I think effectively he's held his hands up on the sports washing front and said, I was wrong about this for a lot of the last number of years, it's only very laterally he's he's uh, seen the light, I suppose. An interesting one on, on Sky Sports is it does feel like over the last couple of years, both producers and even the pundits themselves can't be immune to the behemoth that is social media. It's like they're they're working at the algorithms mm. mentally themselves. So in some of the exchanges, you can sense that they realise this is going to be the viral moment and I don't want to be the better male here. I want to be the alpha and, and they rear up on each other and the producers realise, oh my God. Like people are voting with their eyes. Roy Keane is the greatest pundit in the history of football. And they have really leaned in Keane to that whole area. We haven't done it as much on this side of the pond. It's it's a it's a really interesting uh change in the guard in that ten, fifteen years ago, we used to look at the British punditry and say, My God, those poor souls over there, they get they don't get any arguments, they don't get any uh, tough talking pundits. Mm-hmm. We have all the panels that do that, and now it does seem to have flipped.
0: It does, yeah. I suppose it goes back to Joe the, the point that you made at the very start of this um, particular conversation. Like, what do you want from your your pundits? I what I like about Sky Sports is uh, the football coverage um, is that you get a bit, you get both, you get the good debate because Carrigan Neville do hop off each other, but you also get the tactical analysis, and I would imagine. There's a huge amount of people. I probably know lots of them who would much prefer the old Dunphy kind of, you know, debate and the crack and all the kind. Yeah. Personally, I found that tiresome, particularly towards the end. I thought it had totally ran its course. And when I sit down, and God knows, I watch a lot, enough matches at home across all sports. When I sit down. And maybe it's just me, but like I wanna see the tactical kind of stuff. Like that's what kind of interests me and I think Sky Sports do it very well. And like it is interesting, like Neville, I was I was at the the overlap, you know, the podcasting that they do, but they did a live show in the Three Arena a few weeks ago and got a present of tickets and I went along and you know the kind of the usual kind of crack and maybe it's the journalist in me but like the stuff that I wanted to hear about was the United Saudi sale Um, at, at the particular week that the the gig was on it was huge huge news because the bids were just going in the Qataris the Qataris, Qatari's yeah. bids yeah there was little to nothing about it and I like I came away from that again I don't know like the punters in the crowd might, might have been you know oh, that's grand whatever but it was mentioned but so briefly briefly mentioned and I was thinking I want to hear what Gary Neville thinks about this you know he did come out like rail against the Super League stuff I want to hear like how he would feel about you know this being taken over and maybe was it not the right audience there was a lot of boozed up people in the crowd and maybe they weren't all there like me looking for kind of like good insights but I came away from that going he didn't really address this properly at all so I was a bit disappointed with that and probably more on kind of Fionn's side of things I think when he came out against the Super League unbelievable like what him and Jamie Carger did on Monday Night Football wasn't it whereas don't quite get that same sense, and obviously it's it's a bit different because he's yeah. so strongly connected to United. But like what he does well is is fascinating and it's brilliant. But I would like to hear more
1: from him on it. No, that's fair. I'm not saying he's about to be made CEO of Amnesty international. <laughs> no, but I, I think I think I, to to give praise to how Sky Sports run
2: their operation is is they manage to strike a very successful balance between, you know. Defending the product that they're there to promote, which is the premier League football, whilst at the same time offering the viewers the red meat that so many viewers enjoy is those is and uh, those clippable moments and and you're right it's it, that absolute understanding of how the algorithm works and uh, you and I talked about this before, but it's sport uh, it's it's sports shown in kind of digestible chunks and digested on social media which is like even if you haven't watched Monday night football and for millions of reasons you you can't often um you'll see mm-hmm. you'll see the relevant clips like in your social feeds mm-hmm. and that's and that's such a powerful delivery mechanism for for sports punditry and, I, and 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 Sky Sports have that absolutely nailed on they do it really really well yeah. and i guess so on this side of the water is is to go back to kind of Joe Brawley's Criticism is that there's a sense of like, are we missing a trick on this side? Like, is there what's our version of that very thing that mm-hmm. Sky Sports do so well? Mm-hmm. And and is there a sense of that, that they've overcorrected? Like, like, like I don't know. I you get to the end where it's just like you know, old man rails at clouds, you know? Is it like there's an element of like the angry pundit that just becomes tiresome? Yeah, and I think you can go too far the other way as well. Like, yeah. like I said, I do enjoy what Sky Sports do, but I do agree with you.
0: Obviously, they're protecting their product, which is the Premier League, and we see that in rugby as well. Like, I would personally think that BT Sports coverage of the, the premiership, as in the rugby premiership, is... Like it almost does itself no favors because it overhypes the league itself, and then people get an inflated view of like and we see the the champ- now. I know Exeter are in the the semi final, and they could prove me wrong in a, in a few hours. But um, we see it with the English national team. Like every time you're watching a, a Premiership game, and I do watch enough of it, you're being told that it's the best thing since sliced bread, and it's really, really not. A few years ago, the Premiership was far, far better. But that's a company you know protecting its assets and trying to tell you that this is amazing when you actually get into it and it's, it's really not so I think you can go too far the other way as well which is probably the point that you were making Fiona about the Premier League and Sky Sports and this is their kind of baby and they have to protect it and you know it's, it's our kind of thing so um, Best league in the world Cian. Yeah all this kind of stuff like it, it's, it's a fine balance because I can understand why they're doing it but I think viewers aren't stupid either
2: their eyes can tell them And this is this is the time I, I'm old enough to remember when Italian football when Serie A was the envy of every football league in the world in the 80s into the 90s and it was just everything they got the best players it was sexy and brilliant and and the Premier League is enjoying that obviously at the moment. Um yeah so uh, uh I don't know to go back to, to to Joe's piece I I feel a lot of what he's saying is is, is fair cop but at the same time is just the fact that you know that he was let go by RTE suggests that there's a there's rehashing of old grievances
1: here uh, Marco Shea joins Pat's plan by the way the headline of his piece in the mail on Sunday just to briefly touching it it's baffling how people pay hard cash to watch this farce oh yeah so he's just I think like us all looking on in amusement at so many of the provincial matches Dublin squashing Leash last weekend by 23 points and He said, I was uh, thankful I was in my car driving to Cavan when Kerry were beating Tipperary by 20 points. And he says, can you imagine if our overpaid friends across the water showcased their main competition by pitting Manchester City against Oldham and Liverpool against Tranmere? And yet that's what we're doing with our football championship year in, year out. And uh, it's not a new argument, but it's worth uh, mentioning this time of year as ever.
2: Yeah, but it's also the argument doesn't bear scrutiny because the reason why Oldham won't play Man United and Liverpool won't play Stevenage is because they've created the haves and the have-nots and Gaelic sports for all the ills that one can can put on Gaelic sports is there's a there's a kind of a democracy at play here is is that like look this is in you're in the province so you're going to play each other and that's just the way it goes it's
1: starting to feel more like a grim communism of some kind I don't know <laughs> yeah um just This isn't a GAA interview, and we don't have time to get into the nuts and bolts of it, but it's worth mentioning just in the context of GAA as a segue away from the gas. So Carl Dennehy here has done some great interviews lately in the Sunday Independent. Pages 18 and 19, he speaks to John Coughlin. Now John Coughlin's an athletics coach, and he is currently coaching over in Orlando, and he coaches three athletes and all three are Olympic or world champions. So he's risen to the top of his sport in athletics coaching. But he just seems like a fellow who will give fairly unvarnished opinions on everything. And he has experience of working in the world of GAA. Andy McIntyre brought him in for three years when he was Meath coach. So he has a good sense of both the athletics scene here and the GAA scene here. So, for instance, of athletics generally, this is his uh, informed opinion. I'd be pretty worried We've become so involved, it's like a bubble. We don't realise the bigger picture and how more and more irrelevant athletics is becoming. Of the uh, system of talent development in Ireland in athletics, there is no system from what I can see. It's a system in name only. And then he says, what about doping these days? Better or worse than 20 years ago? He says, it's hard to know. 20 years ago, you had the Balco scandal. Just because there hasn't been a Balco scandal in 23, does that mean the sport is clean? Or does it mean people are doing stuff they're able to hide from testing? It's a rhetorical question, I think. And then strength and conditioning in GEA. I thought this was super interesting uh, on GEA generally. So he says of strength and conditioning in GEA. Most are getting it wrong. The GEA template seems to be to train three times a week on the pitch, two times in the gym. So you're going to spend 40% of the time in the gym to make them all better football players. It's completely disproportionate to the demands of the sport. And he did, by the way, as he was making his way in his career, he did work with the Dublin Hurlers and St. Pat's as well before moving abroad uh, from Irish athletics in 2014. He didn't find the athletic scene here good. Uh, later on, he does say of the athletic scene here, it needs somebody at the top who understands the situation and has got the will to do things. You'll get the odd successful athlete like Dervil O'Rourke or Rob Heffernan or Gillick, but they all did it off their own bat. It wasn't anything systematic. You can't rely on the exception. And he says, there's plenty of money there. Look at everybody employed in sports public sector. What value are they adding? Where's the money being spent? It's embarrassing. We'll do another report after the Olympics, an absolute waste of money, an exercise of people covering their ass in high up positions. It's the illusion of doing work rather than doing anything of significance and getting results. So it's a completely damning take on Irish athletics. Uh, Final point on GAA training. So like I said, he was with Mead for uh, three years and he hates the term S&C. He, he says it's, it should be conditioning and, uh, stre- and strength, C&S. He says there aren't enough GAA players conditioned. There's an overemphasis on strength. So what does he define as conditioning, he's asked. Biomotor abilities, speed, strength, power, endurance, mobility, flexibility, agility, coordination. You've got to cover all of those. I think most players aren't fast and fit enough in GAA. The strength part is relatively easy getting a guy to put on muscle mass the other part is harder and it's less measurable there is a vanity element to it guys think I look mostly therefore I'm conditioned but you get them doing a running test and it's not so good most GAA players haven't done proper training to begin with so you could probably knock a second off their 100 metre time in the space of a season which is an amazing thought through the right training that's the equivalent of being 3 or 4 yards faster over 30 metres on a pitch you combine that with boosting their aerobic power and it would be a dramatic effect Uh, He says, You got guys 29 years of age lifting weights for 10 years. What difference will a few more weights make? Very interesting. Boom! That's what Joe Brawley's asking for some unvarnished, informed opinion. And it's great. Yeah, Super it's chat. It's it's really
0: good. But like, uh, I'd be a very, very casual GAA uh, watcher, but you can't help but look at the Limerick team and think that, wow, their strength and conditioning is off the charts in terms of the physical profile of these guys. It's something that Shane McGrath has touched on as well in terms of hurling, you know, treating concussion more seriously because purely because like guys are getting bigger, they're getting stronger, they're getting faster. This conversation we've been having about rugby for God knows how long, but if Limerick are... You know the market leaders, which quite clearly they are, despite yesterday's defeat. Then are other teams not going to look at them and see that you know this is the way to to go forward? So um, I take his points that he's saying, but I I would assume Limerick are kind of not part of that conversation because they seem to have really changed. I think what GA players what are demanded of GAA players. I, again, like I'm only a casual
1: observer, yeah. so is that fair to say? Do you think? Well, when he lists off what he defines as conditioning. Uh, biomotor abilities I don't entirely know what that means but anyway Sounds good Yeah <laughs> Strength Speed Power Endurance Mobility Flexibility Agility Coordination I'm literally seeing a limerick hurler yeah. there Yeah so yeah, yeah I, w- I would think there are exceptions He says most aren't, are getting it wrong in GEA but uh, some clearly aren't. And it's interesting
0: that guys are moving from in terms of S&C coaches or CNS as he prefers to call it from rugby to hurling as well. You had Mikey Kiley who was with the Limerick Curliers a few years ago and he went to Ulster um, a couple of years ago. So it just shows you that the crossover is is happening now and that feeds into probably Shane McGrath's point that he's making in terms of hurling, treating concussion more seriously. So it's fascinating. I, I find that the crossover between sports like that and the sharing of different ideas really, really interesting I have to say.
1: Yeah. Uh, we should touch on Paul Kimmage's piece of think just this is an ongoing uh, theme he's been very much watching uh, Irish horse racing in particular uh, closely of late and uh, he just highlights another case which he feels isn't satisfactory it's on pages 14 and 15 of the Sunday Independent Punishment Fails to Match the Crime he starts off by uh, talking about Punches ten this week and there's lots of backslapping and everyone's uh, great and uh, he's uh, not so sure it's a pretty situation behind the scenes and uh, he mentions William Jones, who has written a book, The Black Horse Inside Coolmore, and also The Black Horse is Dying, which is very much about doping. And uh, he got an email from him uh, during the week to highlight a case which he teases out here. So in short, we go back 16 months and Elmory Holden from Hale is making headlines because she's uh, doing a great job. Uh, moderate success in six years as a trainer, but her true gift is an eye for great horses. Uh, so it mentions a couple of her successes. And then February 8th, 2022, the testers arrive in a yard. A month later, Holden was informed that hair samples from three horses had revealed the presence of clenbuterol, which is prohibited at all times unless prescribed by veterinary surgeons. So this is last year. Uh, year on March 1st, the IH B published their uh, 565 word report on the case. There's a 3000 euro fine and in effect, we uh, are told that the medication was administered in accordance with a vet's directions and that the uh, copies of prescriptions were provided retrospectively by Holden's vet, Dr. Mazzarello. So uh, Mazzarello uh, confirmed that clenbuterol was administered to treat coughing and nasal discharge in the horses for three months between September and November 21. And that period of exposure is consistent with the reports from the labs. Paul Kimmich says, what were the findings of the lab? Were no blood samples taken? What were the levels? What do the prescriptions say exactly? Was there any record of the frequency or the dosage? It must have been a nasty infection that three horses suffered for three months at exactly the same time. It was all very vague, is his sense. And interestingly, he knows as well, on the same day of the Holden inquiry, the IHRB published a biannual anti-doping report for the six months to December and it included an unusual reference to clenbuterol. And so the warning was it's a drug that may be misused if it's given to horses without respiratory disease and it can lead to muscle uh, building. If clenbuterol is detected, says this report, it will be followed up and evidence such as prescriptions and associated records will be sought to confirm that it's been used only for valid therapeutic reasons. We remind trainers of their obligations to use clenbuterol responsibly with proper veterinary involvement and oversight and to document its use correctly. And Paul Kimmage says, or what? We'll find you three grand. And he reached out to the various participants for comment and didn't receive any comment. So from uh, the point of view, I should stress, of Elmarie Holden, she was investigated. The IHRB accepted that... Uh, this was given by her vet, and it was required, and they have very much accepted that position. Paul Kimmage is uh, pointing out there are va- there are, uh, there is some vagueness here on what transpired, and also he's wondering if three grand is an appropriate um, punishment. Nonetheless, so in general terms, it's just another part of this portfolio in the Sunday Independent over the last couple of years whereby questions are being asked about specific cases, answers aren't forthcoming and uh, it is in amongst what is a very joyous week at Punchers Ten for the sport away from all that. Have yeah. you been following this? Half a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, look,
2: I don't know enough about horse. I know, yeah. you know, it's like, I know that climbuterol is administered for with Coles yeah. and whatever, mm. but
1: um, I think you would just at this stage love to see an interview. Yeah, or Hillier or, and Kimmich just yeah. to be a, a, a good. Yeah, and I think that would be.
2: actually would be a very interesting conversation to have. Um, yeah, there's there's a, I mean there's an inference here as a, of a, of a industry that kind of inward looking and protects its own quite yeah. well and all the rest. Um, interestingly enough, uh, just because I mean it's kind of. A really important story but it's also to a lot of people it just feels so dull but like the mail have two pages on does the Premier League have a drugs problem mm. you know and again and, and just like it, there's a lot in here it's yeah. a big investigation but the top line is Premier League footballers are almost never tested for the banned performance enhancing drug testosterone um, top flight stars can expect to be subject to even the most basic drug test as infrequently as once per season Ooh. And oh, that's the that's the that's the that's their opening dart, and and then there's and it goes in and it goes. There's a lot of data, and but interestingly enough, more to the point, and it kind of echoes uh, Paul Kimmage's frustrations, I guess. Yeah, is is that the mail have put in one two they wanted some freedom of information acts, and uh, they were five of them refused. Um, on blood doping and testosterone in the Premier League tests on blood in all footballers in England anyway so on and so forth they were all refused and that the the most popular reason given was disclosure would allow dopers to avoid getting caught which seems counterintuitive but look the the inference here is is that compared to athletics compared to swimming yeah. is is that uh, footballers are tested very, very sporadic. Oh, football is getting away with a lot, I think. Yeah, it's fair to say on this front, and, and, and the lack of scrutiny. So it's, and the lack it's of scrutiny. Welcome so it's, to see that piece. Yeah. So and and so they kind of they're they're kind of they're, they're, they're sister pieces, the uh, mm. Paul Kimages in 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 the Sunday Independent, and then this Edmund Willison, big big piece in the in the Mail on Sunday.
1: I would be absolutely sure that that two page investigation, the headline of. One test per year, potentially, for lots of footballers, the non testing of testosterone will make exactly no impact on the news cycle. I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's and like the the doping kind of aspect is actually pretty it's shared across lots of the papers because they're talking about Man City obviously feature a lot in a yeah. different kind of you know, doping in terms of financial doping, which is a big, big theme as well. So, um, I thought it was interesting to see the, the different kind of takes on it. You know, Eamon Sweeney's writing about it, Jonathan Wilson is writing in the Observer and the Sunday Independent about it, and basically saying that. I think what a lot of people think that, you know, City's success is slightly tainted and it has to have an asterisk next to it. Whereas in the, was it Neil Moxley, I think I picked out in the, the Sunday People, I think, um, takes the total opposite um, that we should all be jumping up and down, hailing these guys and barely even mentions where their their money has kind of come from, you know, which is which is not the right way to go about it either I don't think so
1: I thought Jonathan Wilson's piece because we chatted to Jonathan about this during the week Mm. and he pretty much uh, teased out our conversation on page 11 of the Sunday Independent and it's in the Observer as well Our City getting too good to be loved Premier League in danger of becoming a one team show so I mean the the point of the piece is uh, a thought I suspect any football fans listening have had he says and he starts by saying Manchester City are brilliant they can win games with the ball, without the ball. They can eviscerate opponents. They have Erling Haaland, who is uh, possessive of attributes that maybe only half a dozen footballers in history have had. He says, though, they are also a symptom of the uh, financial structures that are destroying what the game of football was once understood to be. The naive and willfully blind will say there have been other dominant teams, but not like this, there haven't. And he does say... They're about to win five and six. Liverpool did that between 79 and 84. United did it between 96 and 01. But again, this is very different. He says later on, City have spent wisely. They are that rarest of things in football. They are rich and clever. Todd Bowley somewhere looked up at the sky and thought, (laughs) (laughs) my ears are burning. But he likens, you know, I suppose the parallels with Manchester United 99 are being drawn. He says if United, there was a, a sense they could slip up at any time. and They did only win the league with 79 points, United. It was a different time, I appreciate, but still. Uh, Late comebacks became the defining theme. Mentions FA Cup games such as the win over Liverpool where York and Solskjaer scored in the 88th and 90th minutes. There was the classic against Arsenal, Giggs running the pitch, Keane's red card, Burkham penalty. They remain classics. He asks, though, does anybody, even now, remember without an effort that City beat Chelsea and Arsenal in the third and fourth rounds of the FA Cup? To which most of us said, no, I don't remember that. Uh, he goes on to say, United's, uh, here's a, a stat, I suppose, their dominance. United's last 15 games in the Premier League, they only had three wins where they won by more than a single goal. Whereas City, and they still have seven of their final 15 games to go, they've already won a six by more than a single goal, including against Arsenal where they're completely dominant. And he uh, concludes by uh, touching on the breaches in competition. And he says, the Premier League's USP among Europe's big five leagues used to be competitiveness but below City uh, to an extent it still is competitive but it's in danger of tipping into League on or Bundesliga territory he says perhaps Newcastle another state-backed uh, side will become notable rivals which presents uh, problems all of its own so uh, the City dominance it does feel very different to anything we've ever seen but before the, in the Premier
0: League the word, the word dominance though like I, I find it interesting like they haven't dominated the champions league and they haven't won the champions league and like, there's a similar conversation going around Leinster at the moment for very different reasons that are this all dominating you know force they haven't won the champions cup since 2018 so like is this not just a period that city are you know going through a dominance well liverpool of course won the league as well it's not like city have been you know totally destroying everyone else and if pep guardiola was to leave does that not kind of change things as well. Like it's it's a perfect storm of having the state-backed money, unbelievable players, unbelievable manager, which is the point Jonathan Wilson has made. But like what happens when Pep, you know, kind of yeah, gets tired is of this? Like and if they win the Champions League, you know, you'd imagine there's a chance that he could go, well, that's, the, that's me done here. And does that does then of course the whole thing won't fall apart. But are they going to be as dominant? I would have my doubts, I have to say.
1: I would as well. And I think increasingly the Premier League will be on the uh, toes of City when it comes to their financial uh, dealings going forward and there's just too much wealth elsewhere in the Premier League for some clubs somewhere not to get it right reasonably often like Liverpool have done in recent seasons so and I I would share your point when Guardiola goes he is a bit of a freak yeah do you love City?
2: do I love no no there's something like Guardiola's genius is about removing unpredictability from football Mm. to the best of his ability and it's kind of, it's brilliant. And if, as a football fan, you observe and you watch that kind of little triangle passing that they do and you go, that's unbelievably good. Yes. Like, I could watch Bernardo Silva all day long. But ultimately, it's it's kind of dull as well. There's I, I like the harem scarum. A little bit of harem scarum is good for me. I think it adds to excitement. To the broader point, it's, I mean, look, this argument here, the, the uh, City, oh, it's all over. It's kind of reminiscent of take us back two years when the Dubs were winning five in a row, and it was like, oh, they're going to win the next fifteen yeah. All Irelands. And because it is, as as Keane, you're absolutely right. It is a perfect storm. You need the money, you need the investment, but you also need the the tactical now. You need and Guardiola is one of the five greatest managers ever to have managed in football. There's I think when his day is done, they'll talk about him the way they talk about Croy for Herbert Chapman before him. And um, it, the issue, though, is is that even and, and there's a key point is is that like when Liverpool were dominant from seventy three to eighty nine, mm. Liverpool were the dominant side. They would still lose five games, six games, eight games a season. Nowadays you're winning the league losing two games well this year is kind of a weird year I think that's the the, I think
1: you've hit on the key distinction yeah in this era they man City that is and Liverpool for a time yeah. have just made a common place to hit ninety94 ninety five 90, yeah. points and, and so most weekends it's like okay who are they yeah. gonna whoop this who weekend? are you gonna hammer this show yeah. they? And, and Leinster have done the same yeah and then city will fall in a knockout game in Europe, exactly. akin to Leinster. But that doesn't make a lot of Leinster or City's dominance in their respective leagues a touch dull.
0: No, absolutely, and th- th- that's the, the point I was trying to make. But I would imagine City are very similar to Leinster in that it's a little bit different now because the South African teams have changed the URC and it's clearly much more difficult to win. But Leinster judged their success off the Champions Cup. Like that is, if they win the URC, this year, for example, if they win the URC but lose the Champions Cup final, that would be, exactly, that would be a failure. And I would imagine City now are in a similar boat where all their eggs are in the Champions League basket. And again, like is there not... Is there not a good chance that Real Madrid could knock them out here? There is a decent chance. There yeah. a decent, and yeah. I feel like that's kind of being overlooked yeah. a little bit. And no, then, right. if City lose in the Champions League semi final, I, I would be careful to use the word dominance when they're not sweeping across the board. I think they're still waiting to win the Champions League.
2: But if you were betting, if you were a betting man, you'd have to put City as prohibitive favourites against Real Madrid. It's the same happens with Leinster every year. Yeah.
1: Uh, they're like, going to the European Cup this they year, hammer then. everyone
2: before them but, when it comes to the crunch and then yeah. they're like it's, whoa it's, we haven't actually played a team this good I mean obviously Real Madrid and it's a conversation for an entirely different time but like Real Madrid are a weird
1: anomaly of a club they're they such are. a weird they but don't the, the, dominate guess, the Spanish league I guess the point is in the face of a club like City there'll always be some weird club Oh. Be it Saracens one year yeah. and Shell mm-hmm. the next, there'll always be someone who will rise up and maybe disappears quickly. and City, akin to Leinster will always be there, thereabouts, but they may not dominate. And the Dubs' example is a is a brilliant example
0: of that as well. Like the conversation has totally changed now around that as well. It just oh. th- th- sport works in
1: cycles. Yeah, I mean, after I did say that Dublin will win eight out of ten All Irelands. <laughs> I mean, they decade. still might. I still think, on balance, they'll <laughs> they, win. They, a they still could.
2: I mean, I mean, are they gone in? Are they favourites for this year's I championship? Would make them
1: Favourites, yeah.
2: With McCaffrey back and a Manion fit Conor Callaghan and, and Manion. Callahan, yeah. like, and yet, this Kerry team with Clifford. and, and It's beautifully open. It's a, Yeah, it's a great championship but it is odd to think that Dublin, for many pundits, are the favourites despite the fact that Kerry are the All-Ireland champions and have strengthened their team or certainly not weakened their team from yeah. last year. Mind you, they, Kerry, like Dublin came within a point of beating them in the semi-final without Conor Callaghan last year. So, you know, Dublin are still... Look at you! I know, yeah.
1: I did not think you were uh, <laughs>
2: raised on the fields. Oh, of, uh, born. Listen, raised on the hill, me Joe. Raised <laughs> on the hill. <laughs> that just shows anyone can recycle stuff they hear. I, I was at the 1983 All Ireland final oh, wow, against okay. Galway and I had to leave at half time because I was in danger of getting crushed in the hill. Were you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was only small and and I, I got. I've I, I a. Ten- How were you
1: then? Twenty. <laughs> 38
2: <laughs> no in, in 1983 i was 14 and it was dangerous it was no, no no for me i was a little kid and i'd gone with well, I mean, my well 14 year old shouldn't be crushed on the hill i was i went with my friend gary dorman and i had to leave at half time i also get like a bit of kind of in the crowd i remember just the crowd moving you know the hill moving up and down and and i was just like oh is yeah. that a famous brian mullins day yes yeah it's the one where did dublin have three two cent off yes yeah. yes yes, yes.
1: Right, okay. Your credentials Barney are... Rock. Assured. Brian Mullins. <laughs> Poor old Brian Mullins. Just to mention, um, Eddie Pepperell, page 19, is interviewed oh, this is by a, yeah. Dave Walsh. So, Eddie Pepperell has a reputation for being like the thinking man's golfer. Now, it doesn't take much thinking to garner that reputation. I think it's no. a touch overblown. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. But he's still a pretty interesting guy. So He's, uh, f- he's funny. He's funny. And he's self-deprecating, yeah. to be fair. But just to note, if you're if you're interested in your golf, uh, page nineteen, live life and learning to love golf again. I I just hadn't quite realised that Eddie Pepperell has taken a self-imposed hiatus away from the game because, honestly, in a way that I think only golf can, it was driving him insane. So in the early uh, in early February, somewhere between the tournaments in Dubai and Singapore, Eddie Pepperell decided to step away, three months out for a reset. A run of miscuts brought clarity. So at the Italian Open this week he returns and he feels ready to see if what he's been doing in peacetime can survive the battlefield. So go back three months writes David Walsh Singapore classic the memory has stayed with him 18th Laguna National Golf Resort 250 yard carry over the bunker into the wind not difficult if you're playing well different when you're trying to make the cut he finds sand Uh, standing on that tee a wave of self-loathing washes over him we can relate to that moment you oh. uh, and I play a bit of golf together we've, we've seen each other at our, our most self-loathing uh, no one cares and few will understand what he does next in a moment of uncontrollable anger he holds the shaft of the driver in both hands and smashes it on his knee it was t- really time to take a break three months on does it seem to him that breaking clubs isn't the smartest response to adversity he said I don't know most <laughs> golfers there would say, yeah, no, it wasn't good. But he's like, I don't know, breaking clubs, I've got no issue with that. Some players don't do it at all. I've broken 100 in my career. They've watched, you broken 100 clubs. Oh, yeah. I think I did 25 in one year. I did four in one round in Sweden. Now, that is a bit much. It's a lot. <laughs> uh, I remember giving my three-wood away and driver to a couple of kids in the last... Uh, hole as some brothers and I threw my lob wedge and my sand wedge into the lake on the ninth green had to play the back nine without a pitching wedge but then there is a story I think which just sums up the insanity of golf and you have to understand these guys get tested for clubs all the time like everything is to the nth degree Walsh brings up 2018 Dunhill Lynx breaks his club after the round went to a shop to try and get a reshaft uh, for one of the clubs they don't have the same shaft I've been using. They have something similar. So I say, OK, go on, stick it in. Better than nothing. Next day, I'm on the part three at the 11th into a breeze, six iron. First time I've ever used this new shaft, I stiffed it. It felt so good. I said to Mick, let's use all these shafts next week at the British Masters and all my clubs. So the following week, holds a five iron, holds a nine iron. He wins the tournament, the first win of his career, all because I broke my six iron at Carnoustie. The new shafts were dramatically different in terms of the way they performed. There's footage of me on the Sunday hitting a four iron and me turning to my caddy and saying, these shafts are unbelievable. So a week before it was chaos, a week later and I look like the most controlled golfer in the world. This is the essence of the game. This is the mad thing about it. You can't account for it. You can't plan for it.
2: Yeah, that you've you've summarised it exactly right. The madness and, and brilliance of golf it, is I
1: think it's more likely to drive somebody insane than any other sport. Have you ever broken a club, though? No, I mean they're too expensive for me. Mortals. I
0: I, pl- I used to play a lot of golf when I was younger, and I'll never forget I played with a guy who who was also younger at the time as well. Obviously, uh, broke his club during around round. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, "Wow, like what? Like what? <laughs> like they've got some serious serious issues." Like you said, Joe, it's pretty expensive to well, what you used to be anyway to buy a set of irons. Um, just to snap one over your knee is a bit. Uh, the, the grand for these lads, they just get it replaced. Oh yeah,
1: away. Hey, Rory's broken one not so long ago with the sheer frustration. The closest I came was I, I I went and played pitch and put at a recent Christmas with my two brothers who don't play, and of course I lent them my clubs. And uh, middle child brother, my younger brother, it's a part three. This is not a long course; it's like a fifty yard chip. So he takes a big swing, seems to let go of the club. It flies up into a tree and remains in that tree. <laughs> it <laughs> this day yeah I played uh, yesterday in the in my Saturday comp
2: in my club and the 18th where I play is is that you're kind of your line is you kind of hit it off a you try and hit it off a bunker so I am just slightly right at the bunker and pulled it a fraction and I could see it go directly into the bunker and it was one of those where you are like and I I'd, I'd had a torrid time of it for a few holes and I took the club out and, and I could feel myself bending it. In front, and I was just like, like, and you realise, okay, just let it go. But that frustration that Peppel's talking about, anyone who gets moral about like, oh, they shouldn't be breaking clubs. I, feel, You have never played golf. Yeah, you yes, don't understand golf. This, Like there's a difference between Sergio Garcia, who's the, the terrible, terrible, enfant terrible of, of modern golf, went and took a took a took a club to a bunker and was like ripping up like if you start damaging course or like banging then i think you've a case to answer but if you damage your own equipment it's on you and that's just the way it goes yeah it like i don't play as much
0: as um i used to unfortunately but like golf is so frustrating because it's hole to hole it can be wildly yeah. inconsistent and Limitres. like that's the kind of thing yeah like and like I played in a couple of 36 hole competitions and like you know you might go out in the morning and play well and then you know you have your lunch and then you're going out for your second 18 and it's like you have you didn't play at all like so Um mm-hmm. I can definitely relate to that as well in terms of the frustrations that it has because it would
1: drive you crazy. For those guys, I think because they're doing it day in, day out, they stop appreciating the beauty of the courses. They stop Mm -hmm. appreciating the lovely softness of an expensive Pro V1. They stop appreciating the new clothes and the lovely equipment. And they are just frayed. They're just frayed. And there's like the sun coming down on them. And it just, I would say, I would say it's got to be the most frustrating sport. 100%. We've
2: 100%. I think well just finally the, yeah. just worth pointing out it's not just Eddie Pepperell what makes him such an interesting is his, is his honesty but also as well is his analysis of what's going on in golf and and golf fans will know about the, the threat posed by the Live yeah. golf tour etc his his commentary on it just feels correct it feels very it, and I don't mean it's like on the moral side of the argument.
1: I just mean his analysis just <laughs> seems very spot on. Well, very. And it's it's mentioned in the piece yeah. when Henrik Stenson abandoned his Ryder Cup captaincy to go to live and, you know, laid out all the many reasons and it's important to grow the game. Pepperell on Twitter just said, Henrik, I've no problem with you going, but just admit it's for the it's, bucket, it's full bucket full of cash. Like, full of cash. Like, exactly. We understand that. Like, don't lie. Yeah. And he's had and I, various Twitter spats with the live types for yeah. that reason. His Twitter is enjoyable. He's
2: yeah. brilliant.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that is us done. Thank you both so much. Keane Tracy of the Irish Independent. Fiona Davenport, uh, travel journalist, uh, part of the Golf Weekly team as well. You're both very welcome. To anybody who joined us late in our social channels, we know we're wearing the same coloured shirts. <laughs> we, we, we have spotted that too. It wasn't planned. Or was it? Uh, fellas, thank you very much. Thanks, for sure. done. Cheers, Joe. Sure. The Sunday Papers on
0: Off The Ball.